Welcome to the LACNETS podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Yen. I'm the LACNETS Director of Programs and Outreach, as well as a caregiver and advocate for my husband who is living with NET. In each podcast episode, we talk to a NET expert who answers your top 10 questions. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please discuss your questions and concerns with your physician. Welcome to the LACNITS podcast. I'm really excited to introduce today our dear friend, Dr. Robert Ramirez, who is a medical oncologist and an associate professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He specializes in the treatment of neuroendocrine and lung cancers. And Dr. Ramirez earned his medical degree from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey School of Osteopathic Medicine, completed an internal medicine residency at Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, and he then completed a hematology and medical oncology fellowship at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center in Memphis, Tennessee, and served as chief fellow. Dr. Ramirez is involved in many professional medical organizations, and he serves on the board of directors for NANETS, as well as the Scientific Review and Research Committee. His clinical and research interests include neuroendocrine tumors and lung cancers. He has a specific interest in nets of the lung ranging from diffuse idiopathic pulmonary neuroendocrine tumor cell hyperplasia, which is a mouthful, also known as dip neck, and carcinoid tumors to small cell lung cancers and other high-grade neuroendocrine carcinomas. We know that Dr. Ramirez is active in clinical trials, and he has authored several lung net guidelines, including the COMNETS and NANETS guidelines for the diagnosis and management of patients with lung neuroendocrine tumors. He's given many lectures for both the scientific community and the patient community on topics of NETS and lung cancers, and has in fact given many presentations to the LACNETS community as well. One fun fact I'd like to share about Dr. Ramirez is that he grew up in Michigan, and he's a huge Detroit Lions fan. And after watching them struggle for many years, he has hope this year. And an additional fun fact is I also grew up in Michigan, quite close to where Dr. Ramirez lived, and we think we went to the same, at least, middle school district, so that is a really fun fact. So, Dr. Ramirez, welcome, and to start out with, I'd love to hear how you got interested in this. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me back. It's good to see you again, and happy to be here. So, I got interested in neuroendocrine tumors when I moved to New Orleans in 2012. And prior to that, my main interest was in lung cancer. And uh, my wife, you may know my wife is also an oncologist and she actually did her fellowship in New Orleans. So when she moved, I wanted to be married. So I moved with her. (laughs) And so, as you know, there was a big neuroendocrine program in New Orleans and still is, and they were looking for a medical oncologist. So I fit the bill and that's where I got my start in neuroendocrine tumors. Wow, what a place to start off your career in neuroendocrine tumors with some of the giants in the field. Yes, absolutely. And not only did you start, you stayed in it. Yeah, I was in New Orleans for about nine years. And I guess about two and a half years ago, I moved to Nashville and now at Vanderbilt. And the program here is expanding and uh, we've got lots of patients and I've got an excellent team behind me who specialize in nets and we've got multiple clinical trial options. So we're uh, trying to bring some better treatment options for patients. Yeah, we're grateful that you're there as that is an area of the country that makes it more accessible for patients to get treatment and care. Absolutely. So one thing I'd like to explain about our topic for today 
and I know I've explained this in past podcast episodes, is that sometimes in our patient education meetings, we tend to be lumpers. We put all nets together, but we know that all nets are not the same. So since we're all individuals, the types of nets matter. And in the past few months, we've been splitting to separate out the different types of nets because they matter. So we've talked about small bowel nets and pancreatic nets and lung nets. And as we know, there's specific things and nuances to each type of nets. And what happened with the topic on lung nets is that we briefly mentioned brain nets. So we do want to touch on that topic because some concerns and questions came out of that and also tackle another type of tumors that we might see, which are the metastasis to the bones that sometimes appear and also cause concern. So today we're going to talk about bone and brain meds that sometimes happen and can cause concern for the patients. Would that be okay with you? Absolutely. Okay, so let's dive right in. First with the bones. I'm wondering when and how often do nets spread to the bones? So all cancers can metastasize, as you know, and in many cases, they metastasize to the bone. Now, the common cancers that we see that spread to the bone, breast and lung and prostate, these are very common cancers. But we also see it in patients with neuroendocrine tumors. The incidence is relatively low, meaning on the 11 12% range as far as patients with neuroendocrine tumors with bone metastases. I believe in the Netter 1 study, 11% of the patients had spread to the bone. So I think we see them. They're not the most common site of distant disease, but we certainly see them and they can cause problems. Yeah. And when you see them in the bones, where in the bones do they show up? I think a common question is, does that mean I'm at risk for a fracture? Is it going to compress on something? Yeah, so these are all very good questions. So bone disease does not necessarily mean this is the end, okay? There's many patients who get diagnosed with bone metastases at presentation, and they may or may not even know about it. And it's not until we do the right imaging or other testing where we actually find presence of bone disease. So bone disease can cause a few different problems. So number one, it can cause pain. The pain can be this persistent pain. For instance, if you have a bone lesion in the arm, for instance, you may have pain in that side of the arm that doesn't really go away. Sometimes, you know, you get arthritic type pain and it kind of waxes and wanes. So, so it can cause pain. Two, it can weaken the bone. Okay, so when it weakens the bone, it can set you up for a fracture. Now, there's some areas of weakness where we worry about this more than others. So, for instance, if you have bone metastases in a forearm, it's not a weight-bearing bone. It doesn't necessarily mean you're at a super high risk for a fracture. If it does fracture, well, then there's things we can do about it. You know, where I get concerned is some of the weight-bearing bones. So, for instance, bones of the spine. If we have a hip bone, for instance, that's where I get concerned for fractures where a fracture can be very debilitating. Yeah, that's helpful to know which ones are more concerning and which ones you're going to keep a closer eye on. So when you think about finding these spots and monitoring them, how are they found and how would you monitor them or how would you scan them? And another question that comes up is, should you biopsy them? So a few different ways. In the neuroendocrine patients, many times we find them incidentally and we'll find them on a dotatate pet. So patients will come in, they'll have whatever their primary tumor is that we know about, whether it be lung or pancreas or small bowel, 
we send them for the head for staging information and in some cases low and behold we find presence of bone metastases these can be single or multiple and again the patients may or may not even know about these but nonetheless that's one of the ways we find them another way we find them is patients will come in and they're complaining about pain and maybe we had a pet several years ago and we've been surveilling them and they come in with pain in their low back and for me if you have pain in your low back well then the first thing i think about is the presence of a bone metastasis because Again, pain in the spine, not just the low back, but anywhere throughout the spine. If that's a bone metastasis, that can cause other complications. And so I need to know what that pain is from right away. So in those kind of cases, what I'll do is usually send patients for an MRI. MRI is usually the best test to evaluate lesions within the bone. Sometimes on the PET, we get lesions that are somewhat equivocal where we're not sure if this is a bone metastasis or not, but it lights up. So different inflammatory conditions can light up on the PET. So that's where we'll do an MRI for confirmation. So that makes sense. They're so small that you might find them on Dodotate or you're looking for Dodotate anyways. So then you would get an MRI to look at it better. Then does that mean that as you watch it, you would continue to watch it with MRIs or with the Dodotate? So it varies. If there are things that I'm unable to see very well on conventional imaging, such as an MRI, then I'll continue to follow with Dodotate. So the people I'm following with Dodotate sometimes have diffuse skeletal involvement where I'm not going to be necessarily getting an MRI on every part of the body to follow. So if people have disease within the skull, in multiple ribs, within the spine, and elsewhere... Those are the folks that I'm usually going to be getting a dotate. Usually I can see things with CT or MRI, so I don't necessarily need to follow with dotate. There's some patients I do. Okay. So it can vary. And then that question comes up of whether or not they should be biopsied. Yeah, it's a good question. If there's concern that this is not a neuroendocrine tumor, so for instance, if I have a patient with a known lung neuroendocrine tumor that lights up on dotatate, and if they show a new lesion within a bone that also lights up on dotatate, I'm probably not going to biopsy that because I figure most common thing that would happen there is a bone metastasis from the neuroendocrine tumor. Now, if it doesn't light up, then maybe I'm thinking maybe there's something else going on. Maybe we've had some sort of change in the pathology. So maybe that's a patient I'll biopsy. Sometimes patients will come in as a new diagnosis and they'll have bone lesions and those will be biopsied before we biopsy anything else. We like to biopsy the soft tissue disease, so lung or liver, for instance, before we do a biopsy of the bone. But every now and again, we'll biopsy the bone. Why is that preferred to biopsy the tissue like the lung before? Well, one, we usually get better samples with the soft tissues and we can also send for molecular testing without additional procedures. We can do molecular testing on some of the bone lesions, but sometimes unless we're upfront about it, the pathologist will put this in a fixative that kills off all the DNA. Yeah, we can't really send for molecular testing after that. So yeah, if someone comes in and they've got disease in the liver and bone and elsewhere, I'm usually going to biopsy a liver. 
because I can get lots of tissues, lots of different biopsies and be able to get a very accurate diagnosis and then send for additional testing. Okay. So that's helpful. It's easier to biopsy from a place like the liver. Then I'm wondering, Dr. Ramirez, would you need to know if the spots are in my bones, what that behavior is like or that KI-67? How do you know that the liver tumors are behaving the same as the bones? In many cases, this is done off of surveillance imaging. So if I've got someone on treatment and I'm following them along, if I see disease in the bone growing and everything else staying the same, well, then maybe I think there's some things are discordant. But the majority of times, things are very similar. So one biopsy would be enough for the whole body? Usually, unless there's some sort of discordant process where I see, for instance, liver lesions that are growing at twice the rate of your bone lesion. So that's where I think about doing a new biopsy. I've got a patient recently. Her tumor showed a grade two neuroendocrine tumor, but she was growing out of proportion to what I would think a grade two would do. And so we biopsied her and she was actually a grade three. So that's where I'm thinking about doing a repeat biopsy. Mm -hmm. So I hear you say that with liver tumors, sometimes they grow faster than the primary site. Does it ever go the opposite way where the bone tumors are growing faster than the other sites? Not normally. I'm just trying to think in my patient population if I've seen that. I guess every now and again, but it's not too common. Yeah. So you're more concerned about the liver? In general, I'm more concerned about the liver disease in the bone. In my patient population, nobody has died from disease in the bone, but it can cause a lot of problems, but it's something that usually we can manage. Well, that's reassuring. This is a scary topic, especially when you're told you have this. So our minds naturally go to, well, what's the treatment for bone nets? Yeah. So the biggest thing is to treat the cancer. So if we've got a disease throughout the body, including the bone, we treat the cancer. So for the lower intermediate grade nets, we have the standard somatostatin analogs and PRRT and all the usual things. Where we think about additional treatment for the bone comes into play depending on the volume of disease within the bone and the symptoms associated with it. So as I mentioned, disease in the bone can cause pain. Some people have no pain, so it doesn't cause pain. But when it does, there's a few different things that we can do. So one is if someone has a solitary spot of pain, wherever that may be, we can give a short course of radiation directly to that spot within the bone. And that will generally take care of the pain. There's other techniques we can do. There's ablative techniques, so radiofrequency ablation or cryoablation that we do here where we actually put a needle into that spot in the bone and freeze it or eat it, and that kills off that tumor and helps out with the pain. In other types of diseases, there's other radionuclides that can sometimes help out as well. So they do this in prostate cancer. I think I've done this once in a neuroendocrine patient a type of radionuclide called samarium. So that can sometimes help out with the pain. And so when I have patients that are asymptomatic, I'll tell them that we have these options. Should you ever develop pain, we can do this and take care of it with low rate of toxicity. So the other thing that I think I mentioned was this can weaken the bone and set you up for crash. So there's a few different agents that we use to help prevent those fractures. One is called zoledronic acid. Another one is called denosumab. 
they're similar in their efficacy. Denosumab is a subcutaneous injection. Zoledronic acid is an IV infusion over 15 minutes. These drugs have been around for a very long time. We have lots of experience with them. And they're effective, generally pretty well tolerated. And they are given usually once every three months. Some centers, they'll give them once a month, but usually in my patient population, I'm doing this once every three months. The biggest things we worry about this is it can drop the calcium levels. So we watch out for that. We'll check blood work beforehand. And then in about 2% of patients, this can cause problems with the jaw or the teeth, something called osteonecrosis of the jaw. So we always have them get a dental evaluation. And certainly if there's any dental work, that needs to be done, get it done before going on this. Notify your dentist if you're having any problems while you're on this, or certainly if you need any dental work, they need to know that you're on these medications. It's not common, but we see it from time to time. It sounds like there's a lot of options and things to consider. I think your point of treating the cancer overall is helpful to put it all into context. And then the question about treating for pain do you wait until someone has pain or do you try to prevent it from growing to the point of pain? No, we wait. You know, sometimes people have bone metastases and they won't cause pain at all. So before we go and give you a course of radiation to that area, you should have some symptoms. And does everyone eventually get pain? Is this something to be expected? No, not everyone gets pain. The pain I get concerned about is that back pain. Because the other big problem with bone metastases when they occur in the spine what can happen is these tumors can actually encroach on the spinal cord, and this becomes an emergency. And that's why whenever I see a patient with back pain, I'm sending them immediately for an MRI to rule out any encroachment on the spinal cord, which can cause spinal cord compression, and left untreated can cause paralysis. So that's the unique aspect of bone metastasis, where it can become an emergency and cause this life-altering issue. So what we do, if there is spinal cord compression, we immediately start patients on steroids to help any inflammation. We get a stat neurosurgical consultation because in some cases, what the surgeons can do is go in and decompress that spinal cord, take that tumor off of it, and generally afterwards we'll follow it up with some radiation. Sometimes when the surgeons say, well, we're not going to be able to do this, or the patient's not a candidate, or doesn't want surgery, sometimes we'll only do radiation, which can also be effective. So that is the one unique aspect about bone metastases. You know, one of those, what we always teach our fellows and residents is an oncologic emergency. It doesn't just happen with neuroendocrine tumors, but, you know, this is one of the things that we immediately try to recognize. Yeah, that's a really important thing to recognize. So thinking about bone spots, they could cause this. And how can you tell if someone has something along their spine, if it's a potential to cause the spinal cord compression versus something that they can live with for years and years? It has to do with the size of the lesion. What will happen is we'll see it on an MRI and we'll see sometimes there's enlargement of the lesion where it can start encroaching on that spinal canal and on the spinal cord. So that's where we worry about things. And you can't really tell what's going to do what, so you just follow along with imaging. There's no role for surgery if there's not any encroachment on the canal. I see. So size and location really matters. 
and surgery if it is affecting the spinal cord. Yeah. So you talked about radiation and that's interesting because, you know, now in this world of nets, many people know radiation in terms of PRRT. So how is that radiation that you might use for bone metastasis different from PRRT? So we treat patients with bone mets with PRRT and it's effective. So what we'll normally do is either focused radiation, something called SBRT, or we'll do something called fractionated radiation, which is shorter doses of radiation over a longer period of time, usually about 10 days. So it's just a higher dose focused right at that tumor. You know, PRRT kind of goes everywhere, but we can do this on top of PRRT as well. So I just had a patient a few weeks ago who I was planning to set up for PRRT, but she had a painful bone vet. So I sent her to the radiation oncologist strictly to radiate the painful bone vet while we were getting prepared for PRRT. Because as you know, PRRT takes a long time from start to finish. So, but this, if we can get that spot taken care of, we don't have to worry about that anymore. And we can do this after the fact as well. The one caveat is there's a maximum dose of radiation to any one area in the body that a person can have. So we can't continue to radiate things over and over and over again, that same area. But usually it's pretty effective the first time around. Oh, that's helpful to know. And it's helpful to know that it doesn't exclude people from being able to have PRT, that you can have both. Correct. You mentioned all the different types of focus treatments, so the radiation and then burning or ablation or freezing or cryo. How do you decide which one of those? Some of it is institutional dependent. You know, if I'm thinking radiation, I send to my radiation oncologist and they'll make a determination between SBRT or fractionated radiation. Sometimes I'll discuss patients in my tumor board and my interventional radiologist will say, oh, I can ablate that. And we'll say, all right. So there hasn't been any large studies that have compared ablation versus radiation, none that I know of anyway. So it's sort of institutional dependent. Some of it's if the radiation wasn't helpful, we'll go back and ablate it. So there's different ways to do this. Okay. So that multidisciplinary team discussion is really important here. Absolutely. Thanks for highlighting that and also explaining how everyone plays their role here. So the drugs that you talked about to strengthen the bones, they sound a little bit scary to me. So how do you decide if someone needs to be on it? They talked about some of the issues with the calcium levels and especially the jaw or teeth. When does someone need to be on it versus not? I think the concern is if I'm worried about somebody developing a fracture, that's when I'm putting people on one of these agents. And we always try to look at that risk versus benefit. Nothing we do comes without its share of side effects. Even the somatostatin analogs have their share of side effects. PRRT, 2% of the time can develop myelodysplastic syndrome. So it's one of these things we've got to say, all right, what are we trying to gain? And are we willing to take that risk, you know, however small it may be, knowing full well that this could happen? So I don't give this to everybody. Someone comes in with a rib lesion, usually not going to put somebody on one of these agents. But if they have disease in the spine or some of the weight-bearing bones or widespread disease, then I'm thinking about talking to them about the pros and cons of both of these. I don't really have a preference for one or the other. They work very similarly. One's more expensive than the other. If that plays into their decision, 
One's a subcutaneous injection versus an IV infusion. So most people tend to tolerate them pretty well. Okay, that's helpful. So a lot of bone nets or weight-bearing disease, so the hips and spine. How does age play in, if at all, or if someone has underlying osteoporosis? So it's interesting. So these drugs are also approved for patients with osteoporosis. Denosumab has two different brand names, and one is used for metastatic disease. Another one is used for osteoporosis. I think the dosing is a little bit different on the osteoporosis side of it. But yeah, so it can help out with that as well. Okay. So that might be a two-in-one. Sure. And would you be more likely to give it if someone's older or has underlying osteoporosis? Not necessarily. For treatment of osteoporosis, again, the dosing's different. There are certain parameters that the primary care docs will use before starting these medications. So I leave it up to them. I don't treat osteoporosis, but if someone has a bone metastasis, I can treat that. Okay. That's helpful to understand. So I heard people ask this question, and this has floated around in some of the maybe Facebook forums. Some patients have said, I've asked the question, does bone metastasis respond to PRT? Some people have a belief that perhaps it doesn't respond to PRT. Uh, yes, it sure does. You know, that's one of the reasons we do this. We've all seen the PET scans where things light up in the bone. Well, the reason they light up is because they have somatostatin receptors on their surface and that PRT binds to those tumors. Okay. So when they respond to PRT, what kind of response do you hope for? Do they go away? Should they just stop? I mean, we see those scans where a lot of spots light up all over, and that can be kind of scary to see. Sure. You know, I tell patients, if I get a scan on you today, and then I give you PRRT, and at the end of the year, you get another scan on you, and it looks exactly the same, that's a win. And the reason is, in order to get PRRT, your disease was growing. So by getting the PRRT, if I get that new scan and nothing has changed, it means we've stopped it from growing. Now, if I get shrinkage or disappearance of disease, which is not what I expect, but if I get that, would that seem even better? You know, but as long as we stop it from growing, that's what we hope for. Obviously, what we don't want to see is any development of anything new. Yeah, that is maybe a little counterintuitive for someone living with the disease or someone caring for someone living with the disease because we want to see those spots completely go away. Sure. But I've got to remind people, your disease was growing. I'll take them back and say, you know, this is sort of a, an exaggeration, I guess, but if we have a two centimeter tumor one year and the next year it's four centimeters, okay, so it's doubled in size over a course of a year. Now I give you PRRT and at the end of the year, it's still four centimeters. It means we've stopped it. And that response can go on for a number of years before we have to do anything different. So with this disease, in many cases, we don't have the drugs that some of the other cancers have where there's a robust response where we'll give you a drug and expect shrinkage and are disappointed if we don't get shrinkage. But again, I think this is the long game. And if we can stop the disease from growing, that's what we want. Yeah, we want to play the long game. And with PRT, another question comes up, does having bone mets put me, if I'm receiving PRT, at a higher risk of the MDS that you mentioned? And if you could also explain what MDS is. Yeah, MDS is a bone marrow failure syndrome. So it's called myelodysplastic syndrome. This can also turn into a type of leukemia. So there's a few different types of MDS. 
One is this happens in patients who do not receive any sort of treatments. This can happen in a normal population without any sort of treatment. It happens more so as people age, bone marrow sort of gives out, the blood cells stop getting produced. So the white blood cells, red cells, platelets, and there's certain drugs that the hematologists use to treat this with varying degrees of success. But it can also happen because of treatment. So we see this not just in patients who get PRRT, but in other types of chemotherapies as well. So in PRRT, this happens in about 2% of patients where they'll get that drop in the blood counts. We sometimes see that regardless, they don't have to develop MBS to get a drop in blood counts, but that tends to be transient. When it's permanent, you know, when we see those blood counts drop down, they continue to be low. This one, we start to think maybe something in the bone marrow is going on. Now, there's some data to suggest that some chemotherapies prior to BRRT may put you at higher risk of developing MDS, more than the 2%. But as far as I know, the presence of bone metastases does not increase the risk of MDS. Okay, that's helpful. So we've talked about this kind of scary topic of bone mets for a while, and we're going to move on and talk about brain mets. But just to kind of put this all in perspective, you did say that people don't usually die from bone mets. And I'm curious how long people can live with bone mets. It's similar to other things with this disease. Again, as I mentioned, this is the long game. And I tell patients when your time is up, whatever that may be, hopefully it's from something other than this disease. And so people will often die with this disease rather than from it. Yeah, I appreciate what you said, that this is different from other types of cancers. And maybe those of us who gravitate towards support groups, we may have a skewed view of things because maybe people in there may be sicker or have more of these things happening. And I just wanted to share, my husband's been living with bone mets for over six years. He doesn't have pain. It doesn't affect his quality of life. So people can live a long time with bone mets. Absolutely. Well, thanks for tackling this challenging topic. And if you don't mind, we'll shift to another (laughs) perhaps challenging one. That's the brain. So this topic came up because it was mentioned in the lung net podcast episode. So when and how often do nets spread to the brain? And do all types of net have that potential to spread to the brain? So brain metastases is a big problem. There's lots of different cancers can develop brain metastases. As a lung oncologist, you know, I see brain metastases primarily in my patients with non-small cell lung cancer or small cell lung cancer. In fact, some series in the small cell population say 20% of these patients will develop brain metastases. And that's why we aggressively look for these. And in small cell lung cancer, we actually will most of the time do a prophylactic course of radiation after treatment. In the neuroendocrine world, in the low grade or intermediate grade population, these are exceedingly rare. Some series suggest less than 1% of patients will develop brain metastases. The estimated incidence is somewhere between 1% and 5%. So it's not zero, but it's pretty uncommon. And as far as my patients, I've got a handful of patients with brain metastases. So it's really uncommon with this disease. But if symptoms warrant, then we go looking. And most of the time we go looking, we don't find anything which is good. But every now and again, we will and we treat it. So when you go looking, how do you look and when should you suspect this? 
So patients with brain metastases, sometimes they're found incidentally because we get a scan for other reasons. But when they're symptomatic, some of the things I look for are headaches, visual changes, seizures, you know, these kind of things. If someone has protracted nausea and vomiting, this is sometimes an indication of a brain metastasis, something that's not responding. We've gone through all the workup for the nausea and vomiting. Sometimes I say, well, let's look in the brain and see if there's something there. You know, we look at symptoms and then the best test to evaluate for a brain tumor is an MRI. So you mentioned these symptoms. What about people who don't have symptoms? Should all people with nets or lung nets have some imaging of the brain? No. With the incidence of these tumors being so small, I do not routinely image the brain. That is, unless it's a high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma, then the incidence goes up and that's where I'm looking at the brain. Now, as I said, with small cell lung cancer, there's data to support and it's on guidelines to, one, to image the brain, and then two, to give a prophylactic dose of radiation after your treatment because of this high risk of brain metastasis. So with that said, that's a little different than other neuroendocrine tumors. Additionally, extrapulmonary small cells or high-grade neuroendocrine carcinomas will image the brain, but there's no data to support the routine use of what we call prophylactic cranial irradiation after treatment. So we're learning more and more about the high-grade neuroendocrine carcinomas versus small cell lung cancer. They're different. You know, we sometimes tend to treat them the same, but they're different diseases. Yeah. So the importance of splitting versus lumping. So let me see if I understand this. So with all higher grades, you might have a higher suspicion. You might be more concerned about it, whether it's in the lung or outside the lung. And your experience, especially with the higher grades in the lung, you might add that radiation well, so a high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma that lung, unless it's small cell lung cancer, I'm usually not going to add that radiation. I'll definitely check an MRI. And then based on that, then we talk about treatment. Okay. Small cell lung cancer is really the concerning one where you might add the extra radiation. With a lower-grade typical carcinoid of the lung, atypical carcinoid, you would treat it the same as other neuroendocrine tumors and not as an image unless people have symptoms. Yeah, I would treat them a little differently, but... Uh, oh, I meant the scanning the brain. Yeah, correct. Unless there's symptoms, I will not routinely scan. Now, are those with lung nets more likely to have metastasis to the brain or spots in the brain? Not necessarily. And you mentioned skull metastasis, so spots in the skull. How do you know if those are in the bones, so in the skull versus in the brain? Very good question. And this comes up quite a bit, actually, because what we're finding is on the dotatate PET scans, we're picking up more and more meningiomas or skull metastases. So the meningiomas are usually benign tumors lining the brain. Okay, It doesn't mean it's a brain metastasis. It's a primary tumor. Usually, we don't do anything for them. We'll follow them. And if they grow or cause symptoms, then we take them out. But it's unrelated to a neuroendocrine tumor. But the other thing is we see the skull metastases. Now, sometimes that's a little bit harder to sort out on a PET. Most of the time we can sort it out. But if there's any question, then we get an MRI. And this will definitively tell us, all right, is this disease within the bone or is it within the lining, which would be a meningioma, or is this a primary brain metastasis? 
Yeah, I imagine that would make a difference for treatment <laughs> wherever it's located. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the dotate scan, if someone were to have metastasis to the brain, should it pick that up? Does it cover the whole head? It covers the whole head to the top of the skull. Now, again, it depends on whether or not you have somatostatin receptors, whether or not it would pick it up. Okay. So let's talk a little about treatment, the difference between where it's located, the skull or the lining or inside the brain. How are the brain mets treated? If it's a single brain metastasis or maybe two, sometimes we take them out. So I would refer to the neurosurgeons and they tell me this is actually not that big of a procedure despite being brain surgery. You know, it sort of depends on where it's located. If it's deep in the brain, sometimes they can't take it out. If it's more on the periphery, sometimes it's one of these things where they can take out. And that is usually followed with a course of radiation to that area to try to prevent any local recurrence. Now, if the neurosurgeons do not feel that they can take this out, or if our patients say, you know, I don't want surgery, then we will refer to our radiation doctors and we'll usually do that same course, we call it stereotactic radiosurgery or SBRT, stereotactic body radiotherapy, similar focused radiation directly to that tumor to help kill that off. And it's a very effective treatment, usually given over a five-day period, sometimes less. Sometimes we do both. Sometimes we do surgery for some of the bigger ones if they have smaller ones. Sometimes a radiation oncologist can zap these smaller ones. So usually if someone has up to five brain metastases, some places go higher. If you have 10 brain metastases, I can do SBRT to each one of those. If there's innumerable brain metastases, that's when we start thinking about whole brain radiation, radiating the entire brain to help kill these off. We try to reserve that for that particular scenario. If we can get away with surgery or SBRT, that's what we prefer. So there's a lot to think about with that. And how does the treatment for the brain metastasis differ from if it was in the lining of the brain or the skull? So if it's a meningioma, usually we don't do anything. These a lot of times are found incidentally. Maybe someone has had a brain image years ago. Usually we'll follow this. If it becomes symptomatic, well, then we take them out. And what about the skull? Well, the skull is different. The skull is the same as the bone metastasis. So then we go down our bone metastasis pathway. If it's causing pain, we radiate it. I usually don't put people on denosumab or zoledronic acid for a skull metastases, unless they have other bone metastases I'm worried about. But a single skull metastases, usually I'm not going to do much about I treat the disease. So they are different. Now, if I have a spot in the skull, can it spread to the brain? No. You seem very certain about that. Yeah. I mean, just because they're in that same proximity, I mean, it, it can grow and cause maybe compression, but it's not going to put you at a higher risk of developing brain metastases. Yeah. So we've covered quite a bit of heavy topics here and scary topics, brain metastases and bone metastases. And many of us have friends or family members who may have had other cancers and had typical cancers that spread to the bones or the brain. I was wondering if you could, again, just kind of put this in perspective. How do you know that these neuroendocrine tumors of the brain are the same as the neuroendocrine tumors in the body or how they behave? And what does this mean overall for someone who's living with this? One, it's rare. So it's hard to say, do these things behave exactly like what's going on in the body? You know, fortunately, we don't see this too often. You know, we're already dealing with a rare disease. 
And then to say in one to 5% of the population, we can develop a brain metastasis. So you're taking the rare of the rare. So yeah, we tend to treat these like more common brain tumors with surgery and radiation. So usually when we do take these out, they're similar. You know, we've found in other studies and it's well documented that your primary tumor may be at a lower grade than your metastatic lesions. And sometimes we see that. I don't know if anybody's documented that within the brain tumors is just so uncommon. But yeah, if you're developing a brain tumor, sometimes I worry about you may have that higher grade disease regardless. You're more prone to develop these things. But again, we tend to treat them the same as brain tumors from other malignancies. But fortunately, they're pretty uncommon. Yeah, uncommon. And if this were to happen, what does it mean for my life or someone I love? You know, again, we don't have very good data in the neuron world as far as longevity for people who develop brain metastases. In other malignancies, this is not a good scenario. So unlike bone metastases that we can live a long time with, brain metastases tend to cause problems, especially if they come back after treatment. This can be life-limiting for sure. Yeah, that's a sobering thought. And then also, what about clinical trials? What does it mean in terms of clinical trials? If you look at clinical trial inclusion and exclusion criteria, usually with clinical trials for any disease will state either if you have brain metastases, you're either excluded or nowadays, in many cases, you can have brain metastases as long as they're treated and stable for a period of time. So that's usually one of those things when you read the fine print that's usually in there. So something to pay attention to with the inclusion and exclusion criteria. So again, as we close, this is some sobering information and heavy things to digest. I was wondering what final words of hope or thoughts that you might want to leave the neuroendocrine tumor community with. In terms of what we talked about today, brain metastases, rare. We don't go looking for them unless there are symptoms because it's unlikely that you will have a brain metastases. Bone metastases, more common, but still around that 11, 12% of patients will develop bone metastases. They tend not to be too much of a problem, but we've got many different treatment options for them and we treat the disease. It's just part of this disease. So I think in terms of the future, we've got a lot of different clinical trials coming. We just heard some good data that came out of ESMO. You were there. So we're all excited for FDA interpretation of that data. So I think we're getting better at what we do and hopefully we'll have some more options in the coming years. Yeah, that's hopeful. There are treatment options, as you mentioned, for whatever comes along the way. I mean, you named several of them for the various scenarios. And the future looks bright and hopeful. So we really appreciate your time today, all that you shared, all your dedication to the neuroendocrine neoplasm population, everything that you do. And thank you so much for this conversation. We look forward to next time. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to the LACNETS podcast. Go to our website, lacnets.org forward slash podcast for episode transcripts and resources. We want to thank our podcast supporters, Ibsen, ITM, Kernetics, Curium, Boringer Ingelheim, and Tercera Therapeutics. For more information about neuroendocrine cancer, go to www.lacnets.org. LACNETS depends on donations to bring you programs such as this podcast. 
please consider making a donation at lacnets.org forward slash donate.